I'm doing this talk on on education, and uh, um, it'd be good to know who's here, really. You know, like who's uh, has anyone not been in the Buddhist Centre before? Okay, okay, welcome. Yeah, um, I, I, yeah. So, I want. Why did I want to talk about education? Um, well, I think one of the reasons is that. Uh, uh, yeah, I went to Manchester University and I uh, graduated in 1977. And uh, and I live now uh, in the middle of the student area down in Fallowfield. So I see all the students uh, all the time. And I used to go on the bus, see them all on the bus. And I've really struck by the difference between what university was like in, the, in when I went to, to Manchester University and what it's like now. So... In those days, um, about uh, 90% of students would be left-wing, um, you know, interested in politics, and I was as well. These days, it's like the other way around, so it feels a bit like 90% of students are interested in a career and want to, uh, um, you know, want to want financial success, it seems, um, or career success, that sort of thing. And uh, I suppose it raises the question for me, especially in uh, in today, in this this era since this financial crisis that we, that started. Well, how actually relevant is what they're doing, uh, or what they're training to do, or um, the money that they're forking out, or they will have to fork out uh, for education? You know, I mean, if if there's if there's not going to be, if it's going to be um, a lack of jobs, or uh, if society is going to be very, very different, so I think uh, I, ha- I have always been interested in um, in the kind of broad historical cycles that happen. Uh, particularly, I, 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 it's probably about twenty odd years ago now that I got interested in something called um, Kondratiev waves. So. Uh, Kondratiev was a, a Russian econom- economist in the 1920s, and he came up with this theory that there were these economic cycles that happened about every 60 years or something like that. And uh, he had he, he traced them back through a few hundred years through the Industrial Revolution, and and he he pinpointed points where wars happened in, at different points in the cycle or. And just generally, what happened was you had a um, you had a trough, you had a collapse like the Great Depression in the 1930s, and then out of the necessity being the mother of invention, out of the out of the trough came desperate need for sort of some renewal or some new ideas or something like that. And what what happened with America was that it invented or it sort of it really took up mass production. And started to produce like Ford motor cars and all that sort of thing, and that then became the successful thing that, that drove the American economy. And then what happens is over years, and as it comes up to sort of fifty years later, you end up with the, that particular society and its ideas almost kind of choking on its own success and producing a lot of pollutants and. <laughs> You know, it's, it, it kind of shoots itself in the foot in the end. Uh, 
And so I've been very conscious of, of, of this, these um, cycles and, in a way, uh, waiting for this to happen again. And it, and it has just happened. So, um, yeah, so the question is, uh, I just want to look at, at education kind of broadly um, to, to sort of see, well, you know, do we need to have a broader perspective on it? And can we get that by looking at, at, at the Buddha's teachings? Uh, so what I'm going to do in the talk, I'm going, to, I'm going to introduce Buddhism a little bit and I'm going to talk a bit about mindfulness as the, as the path to, or the Buddhist view of what is the path to happiness or nirvana. I'm going to um, talk a bit about what education is uh, and how it's been seen since the Middle Ages. Um, and I, I will talk about, in particular, about two philosophers, uh, John Locke and uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who were kind of quite um, instrumental in um, education theory. And I'll also talk about two uh, branches of um, philosophy that have had a big effect in the 20th century. And I'll sort of trace how they link in with things like the digital revolution and with uh, an, a kind of more an emphasis on personal experience. And uh, I'll say something about, well, I've already said it a bit, but about education, what, what the situation is today. And then something on how the, those views, different views on education fit in with what I've said about Buddhism and about mindfulness, and then where we take things from there. So I'll begin with Buddhism, um, and so I'll just give a kind of a, a little, uh, just a recap really uh, of the story for those of you who know it already, but there'll be people here who are new. So basically, um, Buddhism began about 500 BC in northern India, um, in, a king, uh, uh, in a kingdom where uh, there was a prince called Siddhartha. And Siddhartha uh, had everything, really. He, you know, he, he was looked after. Um, he was heir to the throne. Um, he had all the pleasures that you might want and things. But uh, he, he also had a bit of imagination. So he saw that actually, you know, these, these things are just transitory. You know, these... Um, traditionally, it's said that he, he, he saw four sights. And I think this, what this is, it's, it's him symbolically uh, realising something. So it's not like he actually went out of the palace and saw four sights. It's more like it dawned on him the fact that uh, sickness is a reality, you know, so he saw, he saw the first sight of sickness, it says, he saw a sick person, but you could say he just, he just realised sickness was inevitable for himself and, every, and everybody he knew. Second sight, he saw old age, he really saw that old age, you couldn't get away from it, and he saw death, so they're the first three sights. But, uh, so, you know, if he'd just seen those three sites, it would have been a, a bit of a problem, really, because there's no, there, was, there would be no clue as to, as to a route 
beyond all of that. They just, it would just seem inevitable and a dead end. But he, he saw a fourth sight. So, and you know, he saw a wandering holy man, um, somebody who looked quite old and you know maybe didn't have much and things, but looked quite happy. So he, so this was his, this was his route, his imaginative route out of, um, out of the existential situation he found himself in. He thought, I can't really just stay here and live this life of luxury. Um, I need to, I have to, because um, because I know that there's this, it's, there's this edge on it. So I, I, I have to go out there and find, I find an answer to. To these problems, and in those days in India, there were there were many different uh, traditions of you know religious uh, traditions going on. Lots of them wanderers who just wandered around uh, and taught different things. So he went and and followed. He went and um, took up meditation. He learnt about uh, he learnt austerities and things like that. He tried all the different things, um, and he became quite good at them all. But uh, but he was still a bit stuck, really. And but what happened was he uh, at some point he just he just stopped, and he and it just came to him this this memory, this vision of something that had just happened when he was about fifteen, when he. Uh, he was just watching his father. His father was like doing some ceremonial ploughing on a sort of festival or something like that. Um, and Siddhartha was just watching this, and in the sunshine, nice day, and everything like that. And it just something just spontaneously uh, arose in him, like a kind of quite a nice feeling, that blissful feeling, just kind of came over him. That seemed like happiness, really. You know, it seemed like kind of. Whoa. And so rather than this, this struggling and striving that he'd been doing and, and practicing austerities and, and all that, he, he, he just thought a, di- a different vision came to him. And he thought that, oh, actually, there's something about the conditions here of, of you know, today, you know, the nice weather, I don't have much to do. Or He, 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 saw, he made a connection with... Um, instead of with striving, with conditions. And this came to be known as the Buddhist truth of conditionality and informed everything because once he realised that things arose in dependence on conditions, the law of conditionality, and based his, his um, progress on that, it worked. You know, he actually became, you know, he became awake. Um, he... He looked at the conditions that were there um, in his own experience, things that he was doing, uh, what was around him, and all that. And uh, so, so, so this is the this is the Buddhist view that um, that things things are and only kind of arise in dependence on conditions. So maybe need to um, just give you give you a kind of practical example of this.
So mindfulness is uh, something that's kind of very current in the world these days, and it comes from Buddhism. Um, and mindfulness is like bringing your attention, or bringing our attention to, to our situation. So it wouldn't be if everything was fixed and unchanging. There wouldn't really be any need to be mindful of things to to bring awareness to them. But it's the fact that. This is the other Buddhist truth, that everything is changing all the time, means that we need to actually pay attention. We need to pay attention, otherwise we won't know what's happening. We won't know what our situation is. We won't know, have some idea of where we want to get to. Um, We'll just be going along in a kind of a haphazard sort of way. So Buddhism talks about Um, something called the four foundations of mindfulness Um, and these are the four main things that we need to um, or the Buddha saw that if you brought your attention to them that 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 led to um, success you know it led to happiness so when I teach meditation here uh, the way I ex- often explain explain uh, meditation is like it's like you know people come into the room and uh, you know they've just been busy they've had a day's work and everything like that and uh, what I do is I, I get them to sit down and then go okay so what is my actual situation here now you know where am I where am I in time and space so that's the first condition the first I talk about like Russian dolls, like the, the outer Russian doll is like time and space. Where am I in time and space? So, us lot here, we're, we're in a, uh, we're on the Earth, and it's a huge, great ball flying through space, and there's all that space out there. And then we're in a city called Manchester. We're in a building called the Buddhist Center. We're in a particular room with a particular group of people. This is all our situation, but. You know, so bringing ourselves into that, in awareness of that. And then time. So we've, we've, got a, we've got a time dimension to our lives. So we've had all these moments in the past. We've got a load of moments in the future. And right now, we're in the present moment. So that's our situation. We're in the present moment. So just kind of trying to be here and bring our attention to that condition that we're in the present moment. So that's time and space, like the outer Russian doll. And then the next one is, we've got a body. We've got a physical body which functions in a particular way. It's got bones, it's got muscles, it's got skeleton and everything like that. So we pay attention to that condition. You know, is it, how supportive is it to our emotions or our mental states? Are we relaxed? Are we really grounded? You know, do we, do we really feel our feet on the ground? You know, can we sort of actually get through that morass of our sort of thoughts and to the actual physical experience that's there? So that's the next thing that we need to do, is like just ground ourselves in the reality of our physical experience. And often we're, we're, we're sort of... We suffer from stress because 
we're not really there, we're not really in our physical body, where relaxation is, is just that. It's, it's an opening. It's, it's an opening of the fist. It's a physical action, relaxation. So, you know, maybe we're just stuck in our thoughts. And we can't relax our thoughts. It's impossible. <laughs> you know, they're not, they aren't physical. So, if we can sort out our condition of our body, the next one in is feelings. So, it allows us to, to, to contact. If we're sitting still, we come and meditate. We can contact what we're feeling more. You know, what's actually there in our feelings. And uh, and feelings, there are there are whole there are whole kind of. Uh, I mean, when when I looked at feelings in uh, in the dictionary uh, under answers.com, very good site that answers.com, and it and this one dictionary had about ten different types of feeling. You know, things like impressions, uh, things like your conscience, like sensation, moods. Uh, the feeling that you're being followed. There are, there's so many different, and it's so feeling is it's an area. It's a whole field that we need to sort of learn how to deal with. Uh, so mindfulness of feelings is like working with all of that, all the, all the, all that pleasure and pain, in a way in which we. We, we go with the things that actually lead to happiness and we don't and we don't go with the things that don't you know so so we don't you know we don't sort of pamper ourselves with every like, little last thing because we just develop anxiety if we do that you know so there's some sense of like not just going with uh, towards pleasure and away from pain but we need to work out how to do all of that and uh and this is really the area of ethics. So working out what, you know, what, what aspects of feeling we, we, move, we go with and what aspects we don't go with. Particularly because what then happens is we, we respond to our feelings. We, you know, we get angry or we, we do something. We do something, which is the next one, states of mind. We do a state of mind. So unless, we, unless we've brought mindfulness to our feelings, our states of mind can be a bit out of control. Um, so yeah, the, so these the, these different levels of Russian dolls, like states of mind, and the last one is views. So I don't know if you kind of watch, uh, you know, TV, um, you know, discussion programs and things, and how much people when they're expressing the views, how much of their emotion is involved in that? You know, it's like, this is why we have religious wars, you know, it's, it's about people wanting one view over another. So if we're going to get to being objective about views, about being able to sort of discuss things in a, in a kind of objective, quiet sort of way, we need to have already dealt with all that emotional stuff, you know, so we need to be not be reacting or... Um, you know, to so yeah, so we want to get to some sort of um, objectivity, really. So, w- with each of the the four foundations, what happens is um, 
there's a sense of mindfulness which is about uh, seeing what's there, you know, what view have we got or what state of mind are we in. Uh, and there's a sense in which we, we have a sense of what would be a better state or what would be... Uh, so in, in terms of views, it would be we reflect on our views and think, oh, well, actually, that works for that bit of life, but it doesn't sort of seem to cover enough or it's not true enough. So we can work on views and we can look at, look at our views and try and refine them to make them serve us better. <clears throat> so, so Buddhism, just to sum up that, Buddhism has this kind of like quite comprehensive uh, um, approach to the human being that includes all the different aspects of them. Um, you know, the time and space, body, feelings, emotions and mental states and views. So we'll come, we'll come back to this later. Okay, so I'm just going to now move on to um, education, talk a bit about education. <clears throat> so, um, if you look in the dictionary, education, uh, the word education comes from um, the Latin e, e and ducere, which means to draw out, or it's like to draw, draw out from within. So, so I suppose real education is, is something that a real educator isn't uh, is drawing something, is helping that person think for themselves, and um, it's but is providing the conditions whereby they they draw the truth out or whatever it is for the, for themselves. So that's the original uh, meaning, and uh, well, I just thought about well what. What uh, what education did the Buddha have? And um, he was born in he was born um, into a, a, a warrior clan. So he he would have had a um, an education which was all about st- statecraft and archery and those sort of things like fighting skills and stuff. The sort of education that a prince would have in in that time. But in, in, in India at the time, and still, uh, the, they've got a caste, what's called a caste system. So he, he was in one caste, or it was like an English class, really, out of four. So the Brahmins were the priests above, and then below were the merchants and the workers. And, uh, and today, you know, in UK, you know, it's even though um, we're, we're still in a way, we're in different although everyone's much more mixed together, there's still a sense in which people culturally are in one class or, or another. And, um, and if, if education means to draw out, uh, then what is drawn out is often dictated uh, by um, the, the, the dominant philosophical views around at the time or the... Um, the, the demands of, of society and the, polit- the, the politic, political situation in society. So, for instance, uh, since, the, um, since the Middle Ages, 
you had a development of um, uh, well originally everything was uh, everything Greek was seen as as uh, as the thing you know so Renaissance means rebirth so it's like it was a rebirth of the uh, of the Greek uh, way of looking at things in in Europe and. Um, so there was a lot of like a Latin, there was a lot of learning Latin. And in a way, um, people were a bit, um, you know, you could only really do that if you were fairly well off. So, so education was bar- barred by the fact of it being a classical education that demanded a lot of study um, from most people. What happened was the, the churches uh, took it on, uh, particularly the Jesuits. And they took on organising schools and te- providing teachers. Um, but then later on, under the what's called the Enlightenment, which is more the kind of rational uh, movement um, away from religion uh, in the 18th century, um, the idea of state education came in, and this came from France. Um, and uh, so... But you know, like you, you would often get, you get situations like uh, some uh, some prince in Europe would would uh, would um, on the one hand he'd be very much in favour of like universal education, but on a practical level he wouldn't really be because it would be he wouldn't want all the peasants uh, stopping working and going off, you know. So it's a bit like it was against. So this this brings in the whole thing of. Uh, where education can, your personal development can actually be in competition sometimes with that of society around you. So, you know, if you're born in a lower in a lower caste in Hinduism or a lower class in Britain, uh, the fact that the the that the society has these kind of pragmatic kind of concerns often kind of mitigate against your education. So that's something to bear in mind. And I'll talk about it a bit later as well. So, so there were two, two, um, I'm going to talk about two two of the uh, the most influential philosophers on education uh, in that period I've just mentioned. So John Locke um, was uh, a philosopher um, who who published a book called uh, Some Thoughts Concerning Education in, in about 1693. And it was just a letter, basically, to a to a, an aristocratic friend, but it became published, and then it was um, high, very influential over the next hundred years. And we can see how I'll, I'll be quite brief with this. We can see how uh, it's influenced our schools today. So what he emphasised was um, a healthy body, um, forming a virtuous character. Uh, so, in particular, um, things like uh, training a child to kind of um, 
not just gratify the senses, but to sort of have a sense of of uh, of denial and rationality. So um, I suppose getting them to to um, in a way, it's a little bit stoic. Uh, I mean, as an example, um, he says, um, children should not be too warmly clad or covered, winter or summer, he argues, <laughs> because bodies will endure anything uh, from the beginning that they are accustomed to. Furthermore, in order to prevent a child from catching chills and colds, Locke suggested that his feet be washed every day in cold water and to have his shoes so thin that they might leak and let in water <laughs> whenever he comes near it. <laughs> yeah. So Locke posited that if children were accustomed to having sodden feet, a sudden shower to wet their f- that wet their feet would not cause them to catch a cold. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> I, remember, I, I go down to London sometimes and visit uh, West London Buddhist Centre and uh, my friend Yunandra has got a, quite an upper class education. <laughs> and I was talking about, I was talking to him about having cold showers and things. And he said, "Well, I always have a cold bath in the morning, <laughs> but only in the winter time." <laughs> and I believe him. I believe him. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so there's something there about forming char- character formation, really, through yeah, that sort of thing. And uh, and he saw that uh, the child was uh, what's called a tabula rasa, a blank slate upon which you wrote, you know. So education um, education makes the man or makes the woman. And uh, his his uh, approach had a lot of room for things like science and geography and practical professional training, things like that but not really a lot of uh, space for things like poetry and music. Um, and uh, he formed the... the uh, he set it, really, in a way, the bourgeois ethic of between, of the se- between 1700 and 1900. So it was all a kind of response, really, to, to help the, uh, the emerging industrial society and mercantile class so make everything practical, you know, to serve, in a way, to serve society, partly. Okay. So then, uh, about 50 years later than him, around 1750, um, you had uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau in France. And um, his approach, again, which is highly influential, you probably have to notice uh, where, it, uh, where it has an effect, um, was that his emphasis was that, was that um, people, you treat people. You was on people being natural. So you took a child and you worked. You tried to draw out from them uh, what was within, rather than blank slate and you imposing something on them. So you sort of tried to draw out their natural abilities and and things like that. A lot of emphasis, emphasis on creativity and. Um, that sort of thing. Uh, he himself was a real lover of solitude, and uh, uh, he used to go off to a, an island called Saint Pierre um, and just be there on his own. I mean, it's quite inter- it's quite interesting, really, because um, his own life he uh, um, 
well, his wife, not a real wife, he, he didn't get married to her, but um, he was attracted to her because she was getting picked on by people. <laughs> so it's like this love of the underdog. Uh, but he, he had five children with her, but he, he sent them off to a foster home. <laughs> this, is, this is one of the, one of the uh, uh, main people in education. <laughs> um, because he, he thought that he, himself and her weren't the best people to look after them. <laughs> so it was quite interesting. Uh, yeah. But he, he had a big influence, really, um, because he, yeah, he, he focused on this thing of like drawing out from the child uh, um, the qualities that are within. And uh, his view is that humans are by nature good and society corrupts them. So you can see that his influence in things like free schools uh, and, um, you know, kind of a bit more sort of like New Age uh, approaches to, to, to things. I'll just read you um, a quote when he's talking about um, going to the island of Saint-Pierre. But if there is a state where the soul can find a resting place secure enough to establish itself and concentrate its entire being there, with no need to remember the past or reach into the future, where time is nothing to it, where the present runs on indefinitely, but this duration goes unnoticed, with no sign of the passing of time, and no other feeling of deprivation or enjoyment, pleasure or pain, desire or fear, than the simple feeling of existence, a feeling that fills our soul entirely. As long as this state lasts, we can call ourselves happy, not with a poor, incomplete and relative happiness, such as we find in the pleasures of life, but with a sufficient complete and perfect happiness which leaves no emptiness to be filled in the soul. Such is the state which I often experienced on the island of Saint-Pierre in my solitary reveries, whether I lay in a boat and drifted where the water carried me or sat by the shores of the stormy lake or elsewhere on the banks of a lovely river or a stream murmuring over the stones. So that's 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 just a very that's just a, a very Buddhist sentiment, really. That kind of reflective um, approach to how I suppose a kind of a solitary uh, self reliance and. Uh, in a way, kind of looking to the environment uh, to to nourish you, and he was a big influence on the romantic movement, and uh, and actually he um, um, he was a big influence on the French Revolution as well. So he was buried um, in in the Pantheon in Paris. <coughs> So, um, I don't know if we've got enough time for this. 
All right, so I'll, I'll, I'll just uh, I'll say a bit about uh, the two, um, the two uh, 20th century philosophies that have been, um, that have been uh, quite influential, really, on, on us. So I think that I was saying before that our views, the views of society, the views that are around us, are having an effect on our education. So I think uh, the first one uh, I want to deal with is, is logical positivism. <laughs> so um, what this was was uh, a philosophy that uh, that originated in Vienna, and um, it originated among uh, trained scientists and, and mathematicians. Uh, but it was it was taken up enthusiastically at Oxford University. Um, and you know, it was was quite has been quite influential, really. So, um, in a way, what it is is it's the influence. It's science dressed up as a philosophy. So, um, what it said was that uh, there are two. There were two types of statements you could make. You could make what they called uh, an analytical statement. So an, an example of that is uh, a bachelor is an unmarried man. Okay, so you can sit in your armchair and tell whether that's true or not. You don't have to go and find out anything out. So, so that's an analy- analytical statement. Okay. The other one is a synthetic statement. Now, a synthetic statement is something like there are fourteen red-headed people in the village. Now, to find out whether that's true or not, you have to go and f- go and look. So it depends on evidence. So their view was that all statements other than analytical or synthetic statements were meaningless. Okay, and that's called the verification principle. So in. Um, Confessions of a Philosopher by Brian McGee, he talks about them, he says, uh, about the consequences of that view. He says, synthetic statements that did not satisfy the criteria of science were just empty claims to knowledge. Expressions of conventional or religious belief or personal viewpoint, ungrounded assumption, speculation, superstition, wishful thinking prejudice, perhaps feeling or emotion of some kind, but certainly not knowledge in in any objective or intellectually serious sense. So all of that was just consigned to the bin by the logical positives. You couldn't say anything, you know, in a way what they did was they, they they, they took the search for truth out of philosophy and religion, uh, So um, that uh, what they've influenced really are things like um, views about the mind. So in um, in uh, the philosophy of mind in the twentieth century, there's been a, a kind of well, you probably you probably it's probably around all the time. You probably come across it all the time. The idea that the mind sits in the brain, you know that. The mind is just a property of the kind of material thing that's the brain. Uh, And in a way, the mind is like a computer. 
you know. Uh, so the consequence of this, of this really, is, is alienation. That people just start to become a bit alienated from their own experience because they're, they're going, oh, well, it's not, I can't say that's a true statement. It, you know, I can't, I can't, oh, I can't prove that. Or, um, so it just kind of subtly undermines um, uh, our ability to, 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 to value our own experience because we think, oh, yeah, I'm just a machine. I'm just a, I'm just a, I'm just a, a mind that's the property of my brain. So I came across this book, uh, War of the Worlds, uh, by Mark Sluka. Um, and it, 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 it articulates eloquently the dark side of the digital revolution, he says. So he talks about um, how uh, how people have, who've who've who have gone. I mean, this was written in 1995. So in those days, there wasn't the internet; wasn't all that established. Uh, but there was there were people um, kind of going into virtual reality and all that sort of thing. And he he says that uh, the the. the he talks about the the digital revolution being like the new frontier, you know, in in America. So, where the frontier before was pushing west and uh, claiming land from the Indians, it's now pushing into virtual space with a kind of evangelism. Uh, and uh, but he says that the claims made for the digital highway, it used to be called the digital superhighway, I recall had been made for, for the automobile, the telephone, and the television too. Had they worked? In the squatter's settlements in Mexico City, to take just one example, makeshift shacks with corrugated iron roofs now featured television antenna attached to iron pipes. This fact, curiously enough, hadn't convinced the reigning International Revolutionary Party to relinquish its stranglehold on Mexican politics nor had it done much to end endemic official corruption, state control of the press, or the existence of virtual opposition parties manipulated by the regime. What had happened? Why hadn't the press masses, enlightened by their, by their access to the planetary information network, taken to the streets demanding representational government? It was a mystery, a mystery likely to continue, I thought, when fibre-optic cables running alongside open sewers replaced te- television antenna as the new harbingers of democracy. So there's a sense in which we kind of have this belief in technology, you know, that it's going to help us um, make a better society. And I think this comes from this, comes from this the, the scientific view, dressed, uh, philosophy dressed, science dressed as philosophy in the logis, logical positivists. Um, and it's it's a myth, really. Uh, 
Okay. So on the other side, other side of the fence, um, in the 1920s, uh, there was a philosopher called uh, Heidegger who wrote um, this book, Being and Time. And he, 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 he went in, in the exact opposite direction, really. Uh, what, he, um, what he saw was that uh, all the philosophers, the philosophers since the ancient Greeks, or since Plato and Aristotle, had been uh, all doing something. And what they'd all been doing had been forgetting about being. Now, it's quite subtle, this, really. So, um, prior to Plato and, and Aristotle, you had um, two philosophers called Parmenides and Heraclitus. And they were re- he thought that they were really in contact with their own uh, selves as, ex- as experiencing phenomena. So... And then what happened was that Plato and Aristotle, um, in some way, abstracted being away from being. You know, they took being and they turned it into a, um, a thing to talk about existence. Existence is a noun, you know. Whereas being is something that we're all just experiencing all the time. You know, I'm looking out and this I'm experiencing or you lot sitting there. So, he, he worked against this, this whole uh, way in which everything just becomes theorised and turned into things. Even existence itself gets to, has been turned into a thing. And he wanted to draw it all back and say, well, what can you say about life if you don't theorise about it? You know, and it's called phenomenology. So phenomena is just means appearances, and logos means words. So it means basically it's what can you say about phenomena if you don't if you don't theorise about them. And what he came up with was that what I can say is that I'm here. I'm I'm here in a world as if I've been thrown here. I don't know how I've got here. So that's a the- that would be a theory, but I'm here in the world as if as if I'm just thrown here. And I've just got to cope with it. And, and uh, the response, um, an appropriate response, or his appropriate response, he said, was, was, to, was to care for ourselves, was to care for that experience, was to kind of look after ourselves. So it kind of goes in the opposite direction to this, um, uh, this, you know the, the the logical positivists who who are sort of abstracting everything. I mean, it's like you're saying you can't even you can't even talk about truth, or you can't even talk about religion, or you can't even because it's not allowed. It's not allowed. Uh, and we, you know, we do take this on in some sort of way. You know, we do take on, and and the, the effects of just being on the internet a lot of the time, or it's a different environment, isn't it? It's a different world to, to you know, to when we're, we're, um, you know, we're out in in nature or whatever.
slowly but steadily, the evidence is coming in to support Orr's thesis. One 10-year study of patients recovering from gallbladder surgery, for example, showed that patients able to look out on trees and sky had significantly significantly shorter hospital stays and took fewer painkillers than those deprived of these views. In another study, a clinic providing Alzheimer's patients with access to specially designed gardens recorded a dramatic increase in panic attacks, decrease in panic attacks and violent incidents. So, Mark's look, he talks about, you know, the, how um, it's actually, you know, when we do meet our friends face to face, it has a different effect than when we're just on the internet or, you know, we're emailing them and all that sort of thing. <clears throat> so the situation today is that um, we're, we've, we've, we've been living in a technological age and, uh, and at some times you've had... Um, You've had, well, in the 1960s, you had Harold Wilson going, talking about the, the white heat of te- technology and as a good thing. And sometimes it is. Sometimes it, do, it is the thing that drags us out of the trough, you know, the Kondratiev trough. It's the thing that we need, you know. We need to, we, you know, it's what gives us our food and technology just helps us deal with the practical side of life. But the danger is when it becomes more than that, you know, when it becomes the philosophy by which we live, uh, when, it, when everything becomes practical. Or, um, so, you know, in, ancient, in, in the Roman Empire, um, they, in a way, they replaced, the, what, very generally speaking, what was a very philosophical, uh, thoughtful uh, Greek approach to, to life with a very pragmatic approach you know so get the roads built you know build the sewers all that sort of thing and in a way that's the sort of world that is the kind of world we seem to be living in at the moment uh, you know in, in, in Britain it seems like um, the whole practical you know get a job uh, you know be a success on The Apprentice you know, it's like it's 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 quite ubiquitous, really, uh, and it's hard to it's hard to 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 have a perspective other than that uh, that's different to that. <clears throat> um, I mean, we can look to these we can look to uh, to the these educators from the past, like Locke and Rousseau, um, for. Uh, helpful clues, you know, because they were say they were say, so. It's good to have a hist- historical perspective, really. Um, it it just weakens that sense of like this being everything. Uh, what's happening now is being everything. So we look to them. We can look to oh yeah, well maybe it is good to to have holes in our shoes or you know just let ourselves be affected by the world a bit more, not be so wrapped up and protected in in cotton wool. For, Maybe it is good to get away onto the island and um, just away from uh, people. And you know, 
it, maybe it is good to just look critically at some of these um, these philosophies and views that are around, like logical positivism, and um, maybe we need to take a bit more notice of like what is our first person experience? You know, what's our what am I actually experiencing? And trust that, and speak from there, sort of thing. So, um, yeah. <clears throat> so, so what did so what did the Buddha say about teaching or teachers or? Uh, in a way, it, there was one. There's one very important, very uh, central Buddhist scripture um, where he talks about how you should approach views or how you should uh, deal with teachers. And it's called the Kalama Sutta. So, what what happened with the Kalama Sutta was um, uh, he was in this village, uh, the, the village of the Kalamas, uh, who were uh, just like a tribe or something. And uh, what had been happening is that all these different uh, religious teachers had come through, and they'd. Um, they'd all taught different things and they'd all put down the teachings of the others. So they're all... Uh, and the Kalamas didn't know what to do about it. They didn't know who to believe or who to, who to not believe. And what the Buddha said was that... Um, he said, well, you, you, you know, you're exactly right to be in the state that you're in, to be confused. Uh, and then what he did, it was he said that how he gave them some guidance on what they should, how they should judge what was the best thing to go on and, and what wasn't. And he said, um, Kalamas, don't go by uh, reports, by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference. So that these are all things like um, you don't just uh, just because somebody is your teacher or, or you respect them is not a good enough reason. Just because it makes sense is not a good enough reason. You know, just because uh, what else we got here? It resonates with your feelings. It's not a good good enough reason. There's all sorts of you know reasons why it's not a good good enough reason. Um, in he says in the end. Um, what you should go on is like when you know in your own experience you know in your own experience this, you know f- phenomenology in your own experience this causes harm or this this is a good thing then you should then you should go with it he said you know, when you know that these qualities are unskillful, means leads leads to suffering. These qualities are blameworthy. These qualities are criticised by the wise. So you have a sense in which or, of the wise, or the fact that you're open to your own. You, you know, you try, you make your own decision, but you're open to being wrong. You're open to. Um, uh, you know, to, you, you're open basically. Um, you're open to, to 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 the wise wise people. <clears throat> so, 
So th there's something about um, the conditions. Well, come back, coming back to conditions again. Um, that, so, okay, so how, there's something about the conditions whereby we can do this. Okay, so I talked about the, the Russian dolls. So it's a bit like if we want to really um, reflect on something, whether it's, whether it's uh, going to lead to happiness or not, it's like we need to get into, onto that island with Rousseau. You know, we need, to, we need to have some space, basically. We need to be in a, a reflective space. And one place we can do that best is in meditation. So we, you know, we, we kind of get ourselves comfortable, work out, you know, get our feelings sorted out and our states of mind so that we're, we're, we're clear, we're like, we're clear. And then we, we're able to, to sense better what's, you know, what is the case? You know, is this a good thing to go with? Is this, is this not a good thing to go with? And um, there's, a, the, there's a story, uh, I'll, just, I'll just finish on this. There's a story uh, of uh, a monk called Megia who, um, who, was, who was quite, he wasn't, uh, he, he wasn't, um, he needed, he was quite keen to get on with his spiritual life, but his approach was a bit, um, oh yeah, you know, I need to, and he saw this, he saw this uh, beautiful spot this beautiful mango grove and he, he, at the time he was he was the buddha's companion the buddha always had a companion with him and he asked the buddha if he could go and meditate in this grove and the buddha said well could you just wait until somebody else comes along who can be with me uh, but he was a bit impatient and he he said well oh, you know it's such a great place to meditate you know go on, you know let us let us go and the Buddha says, well, just wait a minute, you know, somebody will be along in a minute. And a third time he said, well, you know, it's all right for you, you're enlightened, you know, I, I, I've got stuff to do. And the Buddha says, well, when you talk like that, of striving, how can I say? So he let him, he always let people do what they wanted after, on the third request. So um, he went off into the grove, uh, Med try to meditate. It was a really beautiful place, but he's, he was just his mind was all over the place, and he, he went and he went back to the Buddha, and uh, he says, "Well, you know, it was, uh, I don't know what happened there. I, I went to the beautiful mango grove, and um, and my mind's just all over the place." And uh, and the Buddha said, "Well, you know, when somebody's uh, mind release." Uh, state of mind is immature means unenlightened then there are five things that they need uh, and he lists them so he talked about um, uh, in a way it's a bit of a kind of a, like a hierarchy of things so so you need to be the first thing is to be around to be around the wise or to be around people be around people that you um that you feel that you, you, you've got something you can catch from. You know, they say that Buddhism can't be taught, it can only be caught. So it's like, that's where we really learn. We learn by being around people, you know, people that we admire. And 
that's when we that's when we really want to change when because we want to emulate them we want you know we, oh you know we want to hang around with them so some of it rubs off so one of the conditions for um, for this you know for this sort of self inquiry this uh, phenomenological inquiry is like we need to be in good conditions of people that are somehow supporting that, they're behind it, and they're exemplifying it in a way. And then we do it, you know, we, we make our own minds up about things. But we're not always right, so it's good to then have a situation where we can go and talk about it, talk about the issues. So at the Buddhist Centre, you know, we'll, we'll do that on a Buddhism course. There'll be groups to talk about issues that you've got in your lives and things like that. And you kind of, it's like you, it's you. It's being drawn out of you, you know. It's like, but uh, it has to be done a particular way, you know. It has to, it, you know, in a way, it just helps to be around people to draw that out, to draw out what is the best thing to do. And then, uh, on the basis of knowing what the best thing is to do, or having a better idea, an improving idea of what the best thing is to do. Then we go away and try and do it. We go away and try and intensify what we want to do. And and we do that in meditation. So if we decide that what we really want to do is become more kind, then we do a meditation called the Metta Bhavna, where we, we, we just kind of reflect on the fact of living beings and their sensitivity to pain and their aspirations and you know we, if we try and sort of re uh, recondition our mind so it's thinking along those lines then what we do then is we're quite kind we're often naturally kind to people when we meet them you know we, because we see we see that's the important thing you know so so meditation is where we do that sort of thing we kind of work on our um, perceptions really so that the, the, that the improved perceptions can then inform our our emotions, and then finally, the, the you know, if we keep doing this, we'll we'll we will develop into some into something or into somebody. You know, we'll become more than we were. You know, we'll become. Um, will hold something, you know, something will, will hold it, it will, you know, will, will have de- been developed in us and will be there. And in a way, then we can become an educator ourselves. You know, we'll have something to, for other people to catch, you know. So, in a way, the whole, the Buddhist view of education is, is, is an education through human beings affecting each other. Uh, catching things off each other, you know, impressing each other, and that's it. That's the, that's the other way it really works, according to the Buddha. So, okay. So, I talked about. Um, I told you a little bit about Buddhism at the beginning, um, and about mindfulness as a path to happiness. And then I talked about what education was. Uh, since the Middle Ages, and, uh, and featuring a couple of philosophers who are quite axial in, in education theory, Locke and Rousseau. And then I talked about um, 
two 20th century views that have been quite dominant in uh, or influential. Logical positivism and the digital revolution and phenomenology and the importance of personal experience. Uh, I've said a bit about how these views of education fit in with Buddhism. And I finish with uh, the Buddhist view on teaching, which is the Kalama Sutta and the conditions in the Megya Sutta of uh, it always takes place, education takes place through contact between individual human beings. Okay, so thank you very much.